This week we're starting a new um, series, sermon series, called uh, Exodus, the God Who Delivers. Exodus, the God Who Delivers. Um, it is a, a journey in which we're going to try to take a high-level kind of flyover of Exodus. We won't be deep diving over 40 chapters of Exodus and, and preaching through Exodus until I, until I grow as old as Moses. We're going we're gonna to actually take a flyover. And so this morning we're going to cover two chapters, the very first two chapters of Exodus. If you've never um, had a chance to read the book of Exodus, then uh, you probably don't realize that, that Exodus is, or, or the nature of the book and what the book is actually about. Um, but, you've, but you may have gained an insight from watching movies and Charleston, uh, Charlton Heston, the, the Ten Commandments, and all Prince of Egypt for the younger folks in the room that don't even know who Heston is. Um, but, but, but you probably understand that at least Exodus is about the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it is. I mean, the, very, the, the, the thrust of the book, the, the main focus of the book is a book about deliverance. Um, but at the same time, it's not a book only about deliverance, um, or at least only about deliverance from bondage. You know, my first point that I want to highlight to you is just to give you an idea of what this book is really about. It's about God's deliverance, but it's about God's deliverance from and God's deliverance too. You know, one of the common mistakes that we make in reading Exodus is thinking that the story is only about God delivering his people from something. But Exodus is a story about deliverance and a story about worship. One goes hand in hand with the other. Exodus is about, again, delivering Delivering his people from something and delivering his people to something, from bondage to worship, from captivity and service rendered to one to service rendered to another. The Exodus is a story about a God that delivers, a God that delivers a people from bondage to himself. Take, for example, one of the most famous passages in the book of Exodus, the one that you heard in Prince of Egypt, the one that you heard in the old, old school Ten Commandments. Remember Moses, he goes to Pharaoh. And what does he say to Pharaoh? Any, any volunteers outside this morning? Yes, sir. Let your, well, Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go. What does Moses say? Let my people go. Let my people go. But does Moses say that? Or does Moses say something more than that? We've heard that part, let my people go in all the movies, right? But what we oftentimes don't realize is that that is not the end of the sentence. In fact, every time Moses says this in Exodus chapter 5, in Exodus chapter 7, in Exodus chapter 8, in Exodus chapter 9, in Exodus chapter 10, Moses approaches Pharaoh to speak the words of God to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, and then he includes a condition with that. Let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 5 and 1, thus says the Lord, this is what Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
Exodus chapter 7, again, Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Deliverance from, let my people go. Deliverance to, that they may serve me. Here's the point. God is not interested in your deliverance just for deliverance sake. God is not interested in your deliverance just for deliverance sake. While there may be many roads that lead to bondage, there is actually only one road that leads to true freedom. And it's the road that goes, and it's the road that's paved through him. You see, you can be delivered only to find yourself in bondage yet again. This is, why, this is why the Lord says, let my people go that they may serve me because he is interested in his people's true freedom. And that true freedom is found only through him. We are never free until we are free in him. There's no better case study for this than Israel. I mean, Israel often, even when we see in, in, in Egypt, Israel is freed. But over time, in their freedom, they turn to another form of bondage. And we see it over and over and over again, the bondage of self, the bondage of other idols. Freedom is never free until it is freedom that's found in Jesus. You see, the same thing happens to you and the same thing happens to me. There are three things that many of us are prone to run to in our quote-unquote freedom or in pursuit of freedom, money, power, sex. Let's take some of these things, for example, because we always turn to these things telling ourselves that when we get there, we will have freedom, only to find more and more bondage. Take money. We tell ourselves, if I get money, I will have freedom, and we keep working harder and harder, and we, we, and, and we work so hard until the only thing that we're left with is money, but we've lost everything else in order to find that money. In other words, the money itself has become our master, and we've forsaken all, and we find ourselves even more miserable at times. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, and in saying no one can serve two masters, he refers to money as being a potential master of you. Take sex, for example. We keep moving from relationship to relationship, telling ourselves that there is more freedom in this kind of liberated position that we've taken, telling ourselves that the next thrill will be the one that satisfies us ultimately, and yet we never find it. And instead, we only find ourselves in bondage, trapped, enslaved. To the one thing that we told our, to the one thing that we've told ourselves will give us freedom. Take power, for example. We keep grabbing and reaching for more influence and more recognition and more ability to persuade others and more ability to manipulate others, believing that it will surely satisfy us at some point in time, and never understanding and realizing that it never will. We'll never get to that point where we find satisfaction in craving and accumulating power. The only thing we find ourselves in is more bondage, bondage to the high that we're pursuing of power. 
All of these things every time promise true freedom. And oftentimes, they feel very promising like they're going to get us true freedom. And they kind of lead us along until we turn ourselves completely over to them. Every single time, surely or slowly but surely, they take freedom away from us. And we end up bound. Bound to the applause that we find in power, bound to the fake intimacy that we find in, in sexual freedom, bound to, the, bound to the next purchase that we have or the next purchase we make with our money. But none of these things are good masters. Jesus tells us so, in fact, in John chapter 8, when he tells us, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, those that were listening, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're bound, trapped. Some of you may be at your wit's end this morning, searching for a freedom in the places that it doesn't exist because the freedom that we seek can only and truly be found in God. We are never free until we are free in him. Let my people go that they may serve me. So God comes to Israel to bring deliverance to Israel. But in breaking those chains, he is not breaking those chains to hand them another set. He's breaking those chains so that they might come to him. So God's deliverance is more than rescue from something. It is rescue to something or rescue to someone. But also God's deliverance is happening even when I don't feel it, sense it, or see it happening. We see this again in the first two chapters of this book. Exodus is a book about deliverance, but it is ultimately a book about promise keeping as well. You see, in Genesis 12, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham to go from your country in verse 1 of chapter 12 and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the covenant promise that God makes to Abraham. But if you read the story of Abraham, you know that this covenant promise doesn't start out like you would expect it to. You would expect those words to be spoken, and immediately Sarah gets pregnant, baby comes, the promise begins. But no, years and years and years pass, and doubts surface. And struggles ensue before Sarah is given the seed that became known as Isaac. They have to suffer decades <coughs> of infertility. God's promise feels so far away in those moments, don't they? And yet the promise is always sure. Fast forward through the years to Joseph. Joseph was the, the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. In other words, the promise is still moving. 
And yet, there's great dysfunction in this family. So great that the jealous brothers of Joseph sell him into slavery. And you're wondering, what the heck is going on? I thought this was supposed to be a great nation, and I thought the promise was supposed to be sure. But God continues to show himself faithful even in the midst of the chaos. Joseph is sold into slavery. There's a false accusation that rises of sexual assault. Joseph is placed in prison, falsely accused and imprisoned. Never acquitted, by the way. Never acquitted by men, only acquitted by God. And then out of that, Joseph rises to the second in command because God leverages and uses the gifts that he places in Joseph as a young man. He uses the the same gifts later on in life, and he places Joseph in second command in Egypt. And you say, ah, there it is. The promise is fulfilled. God is moving in spite of. And then guess what happens? A famine. A famine comes in and strikes the land and puts Israel at risk. And then you say, oh, wait a second. Is the promise going to be fulfilled? And then guess what? Because of where Joseph is and because of how God has led him and guided him, he's able to rescue his people and bring them into Egypt. And his people flourish in Egypt. And they become mighty and they increase in number and, they, and their bellies are filled because in the season of famine, they had made proper preparations. Or before the season of famine, they had made proper preparations. And you say, aha, God has fulfilled his promises. And they continue to increase. They continue to grow. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Joseph dies and his brothers die. And that generation dies. But the people of Israel continued to be fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And you say, praise God. We can close this up, man. Didn't realize the Bible was this short. God's promises, there we go. Israel's going to live happily ever after. And then you get to verse 7, or verse 8, rather. Plot twist. Verse 8, it reads, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. So they go from being on top of the world, so to speak, into bondage. Here's a real nugget, uh, quick nugget for free this morning. Notice how easy it is to move from liberation to bondage, from justice to injustice, from freedom to slavery. Slavery and injustice and bondage that is both systemic, pervasive, and even ethnically motivated. Pharaoh says, we have to stop these people from increasing. We have to stop them from growing too mighty. And notice there are two things in particular that are motivating this 
pursuit to stop them. Number one, Egypt's power brokers no longer favorite Israel. Who are these people? Joseph. Who's Joseph? I don't know Joseph. What does that mean to me? And so Israel lost favor in the land. But also, Egypt's power brokers began to fear Israel. Verse 9, it says, Behold, the people are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal, deal shrewdly with them. Have they shown any signs that they were trying to take over? No. The saints of God, it doesn't require any evidence that you're going to take over. It just requires the fear that you're going to take over. You see, the absence of favor and the presence of fear can turn a pretty good situation really bad in no time. It can give a people a reason to dehumanize another people. It can give a people a reason to punish people harshly. It can give a people a reason to imprison people unjustly. It can give a reason for people to be enslaved. Why? Because I fear that you might take over. In a fallen world, saints, justice is a delicate thing. In fact, oftentimes injustice and oppression doesn't start with overt hatred. You know, sometimes we think that if there's no overt hatred, then there's no issues. But saints, overt hatred isn't what starts injustice. Oftentimes it's just love for power. Because love for power craves holding on to that power. Love for power will, out of fear, seek to suppress others in order to maintain that power. And this is what happens after decades of living together in Egypt. This is what happens to the Israelites. And so we have this book of Exodus that starts out like it is going to be a promise fulfilled, and then all of a sudden, on a, on, just on an on a immediate kind of shift, it turns dark, and it just continues to get darker and darker and darker as you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2. For example, the king sets out, and he says, we're going to put Israel in slavery, but he doesn't stop there because they continue to grow. And so he says, we have to stop them from growing because I fear what might happen if we don't. And so then in verse 15, it says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if, it's, if it is a daughter, she shall live. And so they set out to kill the firstborn or kill the male infants that are born from the Israelites. But that doesn't work either because the midwives don't do it. They disobey and Israel continues to grow and continues to grow and continues to spread in the land. And so then Pharaoh takes another dark step and he says, listen, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile." but you shall let every daughter live. The ideal, of course, is to, by killing, the, killing all the males, you break down the 
power system in the, in the nation. The women are left with no other choice, no other, no other recourse but to marry the Egyptians and through the intermingling, eventually you just erase that nation that you fear all, fear all along. At every turn, the promise God made to his people feels farther and farther away in this text. Decades and decades of suffering, slavery, infanticide, ethnic cleansing even. Where on earth is God at this moment, some may ask? And the answer is that he is where he has always been. Present. Near. With his people. He is with his people as they continue to grow, even as a king is doing everything to stop them. He is with his people in the courage of the Hebrew midwives that we see in verse, verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and gay and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God is with his people in the courage of the Levite woman who conceives a son and she hides that son. In a basket, after rather after she can she can hide him no longer herself in her own home, she places him in a basket and sends him down the river. And the child is spotted in the river by the daughter of the king. And she has pity on this Hebrew child, and she takes this Hebrew child in as her own. And then the Hebrew child's sister shows up and says, Ma'am. Your Highness, would you like me to take this child and find one of the women that may be suitable to nurse him? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, I would. And so the child's sister takes the child to the child's mother. And the child's mother has a season where she's able to raise the child that she birthed and that she sent down the river and God brings the child right back. And that child then is sent to eat or sent to the kingdom or sent to, sent to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter raises this child, obviously, with all of the best of the best, the best education and, and the best knowledge and the best leadership training that one could ever imagine. God is with his people even in the midst of these dark moments where it feels like he is not present. Moses is ultimately raised up and given all the tools that, he is, that, that, are, that will be needed later on for God to continue his plan and deliverance. Moses wasn't even supposed to be in the kingdom. And yet God takes all of the broken, dark moments to send this child down the Nile or send this child down the river and to find and to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. And in being found by Pharaoh's daughter, he rises up. He raises one of his own to deliver his people from bondage. I know sometimes it feels like God isn't here. 
I know sometimes it feels like God isn't near you, whether it be sickness in your body, whether it be all of the chaos in our world, all the racial division, whether it be a pandemic that is sweeping through the globe and people even fighting over that. I know sometimes it feels like God is not here. But as I read Exodus chapter 2, in particular verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died. Listen, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this. Before those people ever cried a tear to God, God was already making preparation to deliver them. Before they ever wept, a tear. Preparation was already being made. A child was being born and an a edict was being sent out through the land that says you shall kill every one of these children in order to force that child down a river. And in forcing that child down a river, Pharaoh's daughter was being sent out to the banks of that river to see that child. And her heart was being moved to, to, to have compassion and pity on that child and to pull that child in as her own. And before cries were being made to God about deliver us, that child was being raised and being educated with the best of the best. You see, before you ever cry for deliverance, God is moving on your behalf for your deliverance. He's setting plans in order. You know, sometimes when we're in our own sin and we are wrestling and struggling with our sin and we're saying, God, I, I just don't know if I'm going to do this. I don't, know if I, this is, I don't know if I'm saved right now. Remember God's words that he who began a work in you is faithful to complete it. Remember that before you ever started failing, God was making provision to keep. Before you ever cry, God is already moving on your behalf. Remember the words of Romans chapter 8 that says that all things work together for the good to them that are called by God, to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. He's not, he's not distant. He's not absent. He's very present, very near, working a million things that we cannot see in order to see us through to our deliverance. Not only do you see God's deliverance happening even when we don't see it or know it's happening or realize it's happening, and not only do we know that God's deliverance is a rescue not only from something but a rescue to something, but God's deliverance is also, it comes through outsiders and overlooked people. When you look through this story, all the way back to the promises that we find in Genesis 12 that we mentioned earlier, Abraham and his wife, elderly, overlooked. God says, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to be the child of promise. From that child, a great nation is going to come forth. And here are these elderly people with all of their elderly ailments. Sarah even laughing at the prospect of a child coming from her womb. 
overlooked, and yet God sees her. When you look at Joseph, a man sold in slavery by his own brothers, a man falsely incarcerated by Potiphar's wife, placed in prison, serving time for a crime that he did not commit, left there, forgotten, and it appears overlooked. And yet God sees Joseph, and God places Joseph in the seat of second in command in all of the kingdom of Egypt. When you look at these midwives in the story that we're reading this morning, Hebrew slaves that are given the horrendous task to kill these male children as they are coming forth out of the womb, forgotten and overlooked women, and yet courageous in God, feared God more than they feared the king. They said, we will not take the lives of these children. And the Bible says that God favored those women and that he gave them families of their own that they did not have before they began, overlooked on the outside, and yet God saw them. When you look at Moses' sister and Moses' mother, women that are overlooked, slave women, a woman that has to forfeit her son down the river, and yet God sees her and brings her son back to her, allows her to raise, her, raise him and nurse him and send him back to the best schools in the land to be raised. And then what about Moses? We hear the story, we've talked about the story of Moses rising to power in Egypt and, 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 and becoming the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. But of course, we didn't read chapter 2, verse 11, where it says that one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked his, this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses also found himself on the outside. He rose to the highest of heights, but he plummeted in the blink of an eye to the lowest of lows. He was in the wilderness hiding from the king of the land. And yet, in that wilderness is where God saw him and God found him and God began to speak to him and then he deployed him to be a part of his plan in fulfilling his purpose. All of these people, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, the, the Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, all were outside, overlooked, and yet God deploys them to be a part of his plan in fulfilling his promise, as well as Moses. 
By the way, this is what we see when we see Jesus. We see one who was born in Nazareth, a forgotten city, a forgotten land. We see one born to two working class parents with not a whole lot of income, not a whole lot of prestige. We see him rise. We see him rise to prominence in the land. People see him performing the miracles. And then in a blink of an eye, we see him plummet in the favor of the land. He goes from being loved to despised. And he's hung on a cross. You see, this is the story that Moses is pointing to. You see, Moses is banished from the land. Moses runs and he flees to the wilderness. Jesus willingly comes to the wilderness. When he comes down from heaven, from the kingdom, the the only true and righteous kingdom, and he comes down into this wilderness and lives in this wilderness for you and for me in order that God's promise might be fulfilled. You see, Moses reluctantly comes back to be the messenger for God, to deliver God's people, to say, let my people go. As we'll read later on, he comes up with all kinds of excuses why God should send somebody else. Jesus willingly goes to the cross to bring deliverance for you and to bring deliverance for me. You know, this story about Moses, this story about deliverance, God's deliverance, is a foreshadowing of the deliverance that we have found in Jesus Christ. And when we think about the fact that God did not just come to rescue us from sin, but he came to rescue us to himself. Let my people go, Satan, that they may come and worship and serve me. When we think about our own lives where it feels like God has left or God has abandoned, we know that God is continuing to work for our good, to bring about the promises that he has spoken And when we think about outsiders, we know that there is no greater outsider than the Christ. The one who was hung for us, the one who bled for us, the one who was betrayed for us, the one who was abandoned for us, the one who was falsely accused for us, the one who died for us. As you think about this sermon series, as we walk through this sermon series, I want you to put your focus and your heart on Jesus, because that's what it's pointing to. Every word in this text is pointing back to him. And so I pray that during this time together that we would have our hearts rejuvenated. We would have our joy for him rejuvenated. We would have our love for him rekindled, and that he would do amazing things in our midst as we walk through this book together. Amen. Let's pray.